Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. And lots of interesting things going on. Now people are worried about the security of Bluetooth. Whether people can hack into your phone by, you know, doing something nefarious with Bluetooth mm-hmm. connections. I'll talk about that. They it was a big feature at the DEF CON conference, and, uh, and so I'll uh, just tell you how you can safely operate with Bluetooth. I also learned something interesting this week, that Chromebooks have an expiration date on, on how much support they'll get from Google. Oh, really? And you can't tell what the expiration date is. Oh, that's kind of bogus. Yeah, so it's possible you, you could buy a Chromebook on sale, and it's only a year from expiration, and you don't even know it, and it's not anywhere on the Chromebook itself. You've got to look it up, and I'll tell you how to look that up before you get that budget Chrome booth, that but, sounds Chromebook. sounds rather useful. That, that's right. Now, uh, NASA is really getting excited about nuclear propulsion for going into, into outer space. Hmm. So uh, all the, the big three countries, Russia... China and the U.S. are working on nuclear propulsion, and I'll talk about why that seems to be so, so important. This week, we're going to feature Elizabeth Holberton, actually, Frances Elizabeth Holberton. She was one of the original six programmers on the ENIAC computer. She, that group of six women invented a lot of programming techniques, but at that time, since they were just dealing with uh, programming that the professionals thought was clerical in nature— they were classified as sub-professionals. So I'll talk about how she broke through that barrier with her overall career. It's an interesting story. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Al in Southern Maryland. Hello, Tech Talk. Greetings from Southern Maryland. I enjoy your show, and you've answered my questions before. And now I have one that seems to be a serious problem. I'm running on a Dell computer running Windows 7. Whoops, that's uh, already expired. But uh, <laughs> suddenly upon boot up, Windows 7 will, will not start up. It ends up giving me a screen that says was unable to start. And it gave me two options, run a repair attempt or start Windows normally. I chose normally and it started correctly. Next time it happened again, it took multiple tries and finally it started normally again. The next time it came up again, uh, I, I went ahead and I ran the repair option and then it ended up starting correctly. So I've tried booting again and again and again, and it always seems to fail a few times before it finally clack, clicks on. Uh, is my computer dying? I've got CC Cleaner on the system. I don't, don't know if that will help. I need your advice. Thanks for a great show and for helping listeners by sharing your expertise. Al in Southern Maryland. Well, Al, since your boot up occurs intermittently, it means it's not a configuration error. It means, you know, it's actually finding the disk drive, so you don't have configuration problem where it's looking in the wrong disk for for boot up 
the fact that it's intermittent would would actually lead me to believe that you've got some a bad sector in your hard drive, and it's having trouble reading the information from that sector, and it goes back and reads it and reads it, rereads it, and finally you can read it. And so it looks to me like you have a um, you know an eminent hard drive failure. Mm. So I would immediately back up your files, leave it on, don't turn it off, back up your files. Now you can either back them up to an external hard drive, just plug it into the USB port, or what I do, I back up all my stuff to Carbonite. It's on the cloud. Uh, Carbonite's, uh, you know, you have to pay for that a monthly fee. But then if you, if you buy a um, an external hard drive, it'll probably cost you $100 or so. But you need to immediately back up your files because you could lose those files if it if it won't boot up. Although you could recover them by u- using other techniques by from another computer, but you just don't want to tinker with that. Now, once you've backed up your files, you can start looking at what the problems are. Now, it... It turns out that <clears throat> that um, that Windows has a program called Check Disk C H K D S K, and and it and it but basically it checks the disk and it fixes any kind of uh, file errors. It also tries to recover data from bad sectors, and if it and if it can't recover the data from the bad sector, it tries to move the data to another sector. And so you can, but you have to run that through the um, as a, through the uh, what they call the command prompt. So what you want to do is you want to type in the search box CMD, and then a little window will come up. Right click on that window and say Open as Administrator. You have to open. You have to run it as Administrative Rights, otherwise it won't go. And then you can do Check Disk CHKDSK slash F, and then slash F is actually. Slash F then says if you find an error, fix it. So that that's a pretty good utility, and that's built right into uh, right into Windows Seven. Actually, it's built into all the versions of Windows. Now, now you could replace your hard drive. Now, one thing that you could do, you could actually take your current entire hard drive, and you could and you could basically um, make an image of it, and then just transfer that image to a new hard drive. So you could put. You could put a new hard drive. You can install a second hard drive in your computer. And then there is a program, a free program that's really nice, Macrium Reflect, M-A-C-R-I-U-M Reflect. It's a free program, and it offers external backup capacities. So you can basically make a clone of your entire uh, hard drive, and then you can copy that clone onto a new hard drive. Now, you have a choice. You could either put the new hard drive in your computer right out of the bat, and you could then um, just clone it right there, and then you just boot up on that other hard drive. Or you could make a clone to an external hard drive, and then you could copy that clone to the new hard drive in your in your computer. Um, either way, that would be a, a good way to go. You, you do that after, after check disk. Um, uh, but uh, I would certainly act on that. And, and I'd also consider maybe upgrading to Windows 10 um, from Windows 7 because they've stopped, Microsoft has stopped giving security updates on Windows 7. We got an email from Doug in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dear Dr. Shirts and Jim, I need your insight on the Apple SE cell phone and the ancillary battery pack. Recently, I heard that you have your Apple cell phone with an external battery pack, which is intended to augment your internal battery supply. But, you know, I was reading that um, that it's not good to leave your bat, your phone plugged in all the time. 
And so maybe I should keep the battery pack off and just charge it up and use it as, as a backup battery whenever my, whenever my cell phone goes down. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, uh, actually, um, Doug, I leave my battery pack on at all times because I'm such a big user that both my battery pack and my cell phone discharge every day. Now, quite yeah. sig- quite significantly. It is true that you <clears throat> that if you want your battery to last a long time, you want to have it discharged. You know, periodically. You don't want to keep it always at ninety percent charged. So what they're saying is that if you don't use your phone much and you leave it plugged in all the time and it's always like 90% or 100% charged and it never goes down to, say, 20%, that will affect your battery life. So, But if you're just using your phone, it just you could just, uh, you could just occasionally skip a recharge. Don't, don't plug it in, and, and both the battery pack and the, uh, and, and the phone will go down. I like this battery pack. It's an Apple battery pack, so they, they have very good power management. They... they <clears throat> They, when you charge it up, it charges your phone first, and then it charges the battery pack. And then when you're discharging it, it discharges the battery pack first, and then it discharges the phone. So it's it's very, you don't have to do anything, it, and it's the same connector. It's very, very convenient, and um, I, I use it all the time, especially on travel. How do you, you manage the discharge thing? Do you, you let yours run all the way down every so often, or what do you yeah, do? Yeah, well, it just naturally happens. I'm a big user, so by the end of the day, it's down to maybe 30% okay. automatically. <clears throat> so I don't really do anything. Other than live your life, other than live my life, yeah, and it just it turns out that my life is just perfect for discharging batteries. <laughs> just it, it works out very. But thirty percent is enough. I mean, you don't have to run it almost all the way down to zero. You don't, you, you don't, you don't have to run it all the way to zero. I, occasionally, when I'm on travel, it'll run to zero, mm-hmm. especially when I'm on travel. I'm taking pictures because the camera right. in the phone just just sucks power. It does, doesn't it? It sucks power. So if I'm out taking a lot of pictures when I'm traveling, I'll tell you the phone just drops way down. So it it, it does go down to zero occasionally, but I try to avoid that. We got an email from Jeannie in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a straight talk smartphone and I have a question about the amount of data it's using. I always buy the $45 card that offers 25 gigabits of data. Several days before the month is over. See, this is a this Smart Talk plan is from Walmart, and you and it's prepaid, and you can pick either a Verizon network or an ATT network, and you and you pick what it is. And so, for that phone, she's paying forty five dollars a month and getting twenty five gigs of data, which is actually a pretty good deal. That's and not it's a bad be- deal. It's better than you're going to get from Verizon or AT and T. So I'd. I think it's a, it, it, it's smart to go to Walmart because they're just reselling the networks at a good price. Mm-hmm. So she says, I absolutely hate it when they switch to a slower speed because what it is, they don't cut your data off, but when you hit the 25 gigabyte cap, it slows it down to very, very slow connection. So maybe it's good for email, but not for surfing the web. Mm -hmm. Now, I heard there was an app that could help me avoid the data cap on straight talk, on the straight talk plan. My friend told me there is one, but I can't find it. And I've searched the Google Play Store everywhere and I can't find it. I think he just may be saying that to, to pull me to pull my leg. Am I right, or is it really an app that will do this, Genie, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Well, Genie, there are no legitimate apps that will override the data cap on your straight talk plan. There are third-party apps that claim to do this, but they really don't work. And what more typically they're used for is to put malware on your phone. Uh, the reason they're not available on the official Google Play Store is because they don't work, and they're ridden with malware. So don't use that. Right. There is no free lunch. There is no free lunch on the deal. But there are a few things you can do to minimize your daily mo- d- daily monthly usage. For one thing, on some mobile web browsers, you can reduce the 
quality of the image, which also reduces the file size. So you can go into to the options of your mobile web browser and see if you can, you know, download lower quality images. That will save you quite a bit of bandwidth. Secondly, you could check a list of installed apps, uh, and you're, there's a, uh, and you can and you can look at the power management section of your phone. It will tell you how much how much uh, data each of those apps is using. And, and if some of them are just talking in the background, you don't use them, just, you know, disable them or, or delete them. Um, now, there's a fantastic uh, program called My Data Manager, which will analyze your phone's data usage, and it'll help you figure out exactly what you need to do to improve it. You can also disable these push notifications. You know, like Facebook loves to push a notification yeah. anytime anybody does anything. Well, that takes a lot of data. You can disable push notifications on all your social media because you really don't have to know the second that somebody posts a like. You could, you could probably wait until you got home and were on Wi-Fi to check that. Now, here's the biggest thing that you can do. Hook up to every available Wi-Fi connection. Because when you're on Wi-Fi, you're not using your phone's data plan. It's you're using the data plan of the, of the Wi-Fi network you're on. And most of those are, uh, you know, d don't really have a cap. And so I think if you do these few things, you can probably bring your usage down. But because 25 gigabytes, is a, that's a lot of data to use in a month. Um, I mean, I use, and I use my phone a lot. I, I use about six or seven megabytes of data just on my phone each month. But I don't watch videos. So I'm guessing, Jeannie, that you're watching some videos. So I would recommend uh, if you watch videos, do it when you're on Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. uh, we got an email from Sandeep in New York City. Dear Doc and Jim, I made a stupid mistake, and I'm hoping you can help me out. I'm not a professional photographer or anything, but I do love taking pictures. I take a lot of them. I've got a Canon PowerShot camera. I've got two SD cards. I swap them in and out. When one fills up... I swap in the I swap in a new one and I, and that's how I actually that's how I actually you know manage my photos. But what happened is I actually I actually got the two cards mixed up and I put in the card with all my pictures thinking that it was the blank card and I formatted it. And now it wiped out a ton of pictures Oops. that I really want to keep. Is there any way I can get them back? Probably not, right? Some deep, no, no, he can get them back. Oh good. No problem. Okay, if all you did was format the card without using it again, you can most likely get them all back. If you've used the the um, if you've used the 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 drive again the SD card again, you you might have copied pictures onto it and overwritten other pictures. But if you copied no files onto it, all you've changed is the is the is the formatting information, and the actual files are untouched. Now, a fantastic free program I've talked about before is Recuva, R E C U V A. It'll scan your internal external hard drive. USB thumb drive or memory card from your camera or smartphone and give you the option to undelete any files that it finds. Recover will scan your memory card and compile an inventory of all files that have not been overwritten with new files since the card was formatted. I got a feeling that since you had, didn't use that card much, you'll, you'll, you'll find most of your photos. You can go to, you can, here's a link to Recover. It's at oldergeeks.com slash downloads, and, um, and you can download it there for free. Now, this is actually what, what I call, you go to the site, and if you like the program, they're saying, well, you know, you could, you could give us a donation of like, you know, a little bit. And I think it's a great program, it's, and I think it'll fix your problems. Um, we got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Schertz. 
when I'm using Ookla speed test for my internet connection speed, Ookla allows me to change servers. And just because one server is closer than another, it will choose, even though one is closer than another, it will always choose the fastest server. There are more than 30 servers of various locations in Colorado listed. My provider is Comcast, and even though Ookla goes to the fastest connection, is that the connection that my iPad goes to? Or does the connection go to Comcast Infinity or the ISP? Great show with lots of inform- information, Arnie, in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, uh, when you do these speed tests, all the data passes through your ISP, so it all goes through the servers on your Comcast servers. What you're selecting is the server you're downloading the files from. So if you pick a, <clears throat> a particular server to do the speed test from, you want a, a server that's that will download files faster than your internet connection. So you're not looking at the download speed of the server itself. You're looking at your internet connection. So you pick the fastest server you can get, and it will go through your Comcast ISP and then then to you. And so, but you're all and so you're basically testing the the you know the the total path from the other server to your ISP server, then to your device at your house. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio. Heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2. Follow us on the web at stratford.edu, and you can download our our podcast by going to Podcast One or to Apple iTunes. We'll be back with more Tech Talk in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Frances Elizabeth Holberton. Holberton. Frances Elizabeth Holberton was one of the six original programmers of the ENIAC computer. Holberton also invented breakpoints in computer debugging and many other things. She was born Frances Elizabeth Snyder in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on March 7, 1917. She studied journalism because it was a 
a curriculum that let her travel far afield. But then she, uh, you know, midway through her studies, got interested in mathematics. So she started taking math classes. And this was back when women were not supposed to be working professionally. And her math, math, her math teacher, if you can imagine, said, Francis, wouldn't you be better off staying home taking care of kids than Yikes. learning math? I mean, can you imagine, imagine if, if, a te- today, right? if he would say that today, he would be toast. Uh-huh. So this was back around around, 19, around 1940, around 1937, 1940. So it was a different world then and very hard for women to enter technology. This is why these women were so special. This is all the t- also around the time that Grace Hopper was very active doing all of her works. Now, the Army needed to compute ballistic trajectories. And the, the, this was the, uh, the, the Army Munitions Lab was, was doing that. And they were doing these all by hand. And, and they figured that, you know, doing these calculations is sort of clerical work and it's kind of women's work. So they hired women who, were, who had mathematics backgrounds to calculate these trajectories manually. Um, and what they called these women who were computing the results of these, uh, you know, computing the, uh, the, um, the ballistic trajectories, they called them computers because they were computing. So she was actually a computer for the, uh, and, and she was hired by the Moore School of Engineering. And, when they, and then when they decided to release the first electronic computer, the ENIAC, um, it was, uh, it was, this was the first all-electronic computer. They needed people to program it. So they they picked the they picked six of the computer and computing women to do it, and of course the professionals designed the computer and all the programming was viewed as clerical work. So the six programmers who were hired to program the ENIAC computer were classified as sub-professionals. Ouch! Can you imagine that? No. And then they had to, then they used the ENIAC computer to calculate tra- trajectories for the ballistic research lab. This is an Ar- army lab. Now, because the ENIAC was classified, and of course designed by the men, the women were not even allowed to see the computer. They could only work with the blueprints of the computer and the wiring diagrams to figure out how to comp- how to program it. They, there was no manual. They they had to figure this out on their own as subprofessionals. Now, it turns out that Frances Holberton, she had so many ideas that came to her overnight because they they were trying trying to program this thing that she would go home and think about it and dream about it, and she would come back in the morning with the solution. And they said that that Francis solved more problems in her sleep than most people did when they were <laughs> awake. Funny. Now, after World War II, she worked at Remington Rand and at the National Bureau of Standards. She helped develop the Univac computer. She designed control panels that put numeric keyboard next to the keyboard. You know, now, now we're just used to we got the numeric keyboard right next to the big keyboard. That was one of her. That was one of her, you know, uh, suggestions, mm-hmm. inventions. She she persuaded uh, the engineers to replace Univac's black exterior with a gray beige tone that came to be the universal color of computers. The gray and beige was. The, um, she wrote the first generative programming system, sort merge, where you know you sort numbers or you merge them. Now what she did, she used a deck of playing cards to develop the decision tree for the binary sort function, and she wrote code to read and write data as needed during the process. Now, this was back when there was when there, when there was really no programming. She was inventing this as she went along. Mm-hmm. She wrote the first statistical analysis package that was used in the 1950 census. 
1953, she became a supervisor of advanced program in the Navy's Applied Math Lab in Maryland, where she stayed until 1966. Now, Holberton worked very closely with John Motchley to develop the C-10 instruction set for BINAC, B-I-N-A-C, which is considered the prototype of all modern programming languages. She also participated in the development of the early standards for COBOL and Fortran. These are the, uh, and she worked on that project with Grace Hopper, who we've talked about many times before. Later, as an employee of the National Bureau of Standards, she was active in the first two revisions of the Fortran, Fortran standard language format, Fortran 77 and Fortran 90. That's what I, that, my, that was my first Fortran programming language, Fortran 77. brings <laughs> near, near and dear to my heart. I'll always love Fortran. You know, really? you know it's, like the first, it's like the first programming language that you learn. It's the one that you end up loving, just like the first songs that you hear when you're growing up are your favorite mm-hmm. songs your whole life. Right. Sort of that, but most people don't not, don't think about programming languages. No, sense, because though. most people don't. Most people don't program. Yeah, that could be. She does decide December eighth, two thousand one, in Rockville, Maryland. She's a local girl at age eighty four. In 1997, she was the only woman of the original six who programmed the ENIAC machine to receive the Augusta Ada Lovelace Award. And I think that's because she did so many more groundbreaking things after that original task of programming the ENIAC machine. Also in 1997, she received the IEEE Computer Pioneer Award from the um, Computer Society for for developing the Sort Merge Generator. She was inducted into the Women in Technology International Hall of Fame all in 1997. So there you go. This is a woman who actually overcame a lot of bias against yeah. women in the tech field and achieved much. Frances Elizabeth Holberton. Why do you think the beige gray thing became so popular with computers? I don't know why that. I mean, it's, I, I mean because when we think back, it's one of the things we laugh about was how ugly they were back in the in the early stages, right? Because they're all black now, right? Look around this this studio. All the monitors here have black. They're they're all black. Now IBM though is blue. IBM likes all their computers to be blue. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So I never uh, had an IBM computer. Well, not not an IBM la- like a main know, laptop, like a mainframe. Uh-huh. We're talking about mainframe colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you go to this beige and gray kind of look, it's very soothing if you're in this, you know, this clean room environment, I guess. <laughs> That's know? true. I guess you're right about you know. that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Very good. Well, now is your chance to uh, you know, maybe win a prize from us. If you, uh, we're going to play the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio. Heard every Saturday on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2. Check out all the great programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. You can also download our podcast by going to Podcast One or the Apple iTunes Store. Be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can sit yeah, down now. I'm amazed that even in the middle of summer, you're able to get a full studio audience it is in just here. Incredible. And at this early early hour on Saturday morning. I know. This this, of course, is not just a radio show. No. This is a classroom of the airways, yes. and we have to assess whether the class has been paying attention. And we do that with the pop quiz. Which is also known as an assessment, as you educators like to call it, right? It is an assessment. It's, we're also measuring program learning outcomes, PLOs, oh as God. part of this. So uh, very rarely do they measure program learning outcomes here on this radio station. No, they but don't. we do it's it probably here. a good thing. We do it here right away. So what we're going to do... With the pop quiz, if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get an A-plus for today's session class, but you will also receive tickets to fine dining at one of our Stratford University dining rooms. Earlier in the show, I talked about a Frances Elizabeth Holberton, one of the original six programmers on the ENIAC. When she was originally hired by the Moore School of Engineering to calculate uh, ballistic trajectories manually, uh, what was she called? There you go. There's the question. If you know the answer to today's question, well, color me impressed. Now's your time to act on that and win free lunch by picking up your device and giving us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're computing ballistics trajectories in... Canada. Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else anywhere else may call us on the international line, which sometimes is operational, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, uh, yes. Thank you very much. I think we should go right on to the Bluetooth security issue now. I think we should, yes. This is really quite interesting. Now, Bluetooth is... 
Among security professionals, it's been a dirty word for a while. One of the most common pieces of advice given advice given to attendees at the DEFCON hacker conference, this is when, when you're just with a bunch of hackers, make certain that your Bluetooth is disabled on your phone. At this year's DEFCON conference, researchers showed off the ability to use Bluetooth to identify vulnerable digital speakers that were Bluetooth speakers. Then they could hack those speakers, take them over, and they could play anything they want on those speakers. Researchers recently announced a flaw that could allow hackers to intercept and alter data sent over Bluetooth. And a hacker is able to listen in or change the content of nearby Bluetooth communications, even between devices that have previously been paired. Researchers also demonstrated how AirDrop, this is the, the Apple device for you know transferring pictures and things between iPhones, how AirDrop can be used by malicious actors to determine your full 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 num your full phone number due to the way that Bluetooth low energy works. Many stores now use Bluetooth beacons to track the location of individual shoppers as you walk around the store. And then they sell that information to advertisers. So by keeping Bluetooth enabled on your phone at all times, it builds up, it, it opens you up to potential hacks or abuse. So the solution is, and what these security professionals are recommending, is that if you're not using Bluetooth, just turn it off. And then you're not vulnerable. You can easily do that. Just go to settings and then turn off Bluetooth. We do not have a winner yet. Okay, let's talk. Earlier in the show, I talked about Frances Elizabeth Holberton. She, of course, was one of the original programmers uh, uh, of the ENIAC machine. When she was hired uh, to, do, to, to do manual ballistic uh, trajectory calculations, uh, uh, what was her job classified as? What was she classified as? Yes, and 877-936-9333 is the number to call. Okay, let's talk about buying a Chromebook. Watch for the expiration date. Now, it's not printed on the box, but every Chromebook has an auto-update expiration date, auto-update expiration date, which after that date, the operating system is unsupported by Google. Now, the authoritative, docu authoritative document on the subject uh, states that Google will support a, a new platform for six and a half years with auto-update supports, but after six and a half years... They get an auto-update expiration, and boom, they don't support it. Now, while six and a half years sounds reasonable, the clock starts ticking when the first platform is released. So you might buy a computer, like maybe on sale, that had been released three years before. At that point, there's only three and a half years left on the, uh, you know, on the device, and then, then it's out of support. So if, you're, if you buy a later model that uses the same hardware, you're not getting the full six and a half years. Now, after the AUE date passes, that's automatic auto-update expiration. After that date passes, there will be no more automatic software updates from Google and no technical support from Google. If you happen to buy a, a Chromebook late in a product cycle's life, you may be surprised at how soon the AUE arrives. Now, you can continue using your Chromebook after that date, but it's frozen in time, and uh, Google's not going to help you. Now, you can check the expiration date on your machine. It's actually, you, you can look at it. The manufacturers don't list it anywhere, but you can go to Google. You go to support.google.com slash Chrome slash A slash answers, and I'll just, if you just go to the, um, go to the printout, which, uh, go to the uh, show outline, we will we'll get that. Or you can Google Chromebook AUE dates 
and you'll and you'll get them and it, you'll list all you see all the manufacturers here and you can see when your device is going to expire some of the original asus devices that were out there by chromebooks their, their expiration dates already passed so it is a problem on an ongoing basis all right we have somebody who would like to play okay. the game here let's go to line one it is our friend lewis calling from rockville maryland good morning lewis how are you Good morning. Yes. Good earlier earlier in the show, we talked about Frances Holberton. She was hired by uh, to 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 calculate ballistic direct direct uh, ballistic trajectories uh, manually. What was she called when she was uh, hired for that job? Computer. That is that correct. Is correct. Dead Woo-hoo! on there. There you go, uh, Lewis. Thanks for checking in this morning. Nice to hear from you. And hang on a second here. We're going to put you back on hold. Send you back to Andrew. He'll get your information, and we will put your uh, prize right in the mail. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. Don't worry. If you missed the program, you can download all of our podcasts by going to either the Apple iTunes Store or to Podcast One. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. You know, we've been talking on and off about the Earth's magnetic field flipping occasionally. It does it every, you know, every 20,000 years or so. And, of course, it's the magnetic field that protects us from radiation coming in from uh, you know from outer space from the sun and so we need our magnetic field to divert these uh, these particles and so the magnetic field is actually caused by we've got this inner core of um, molten iron that actually is magnetized and that is actually causing the magnetic field which is here on the earth and that core is rotating and let's and that was interesting how they have measured the speed that this core is rotating Let's go back in history. 1971, September 21st, a nuclear bomb exploded in Russia's Novaya Zemla Islands. The powerful blast sent waves rippling deep into the earth. They ricocheted off the inner core, and they ultimately pinged an array of mechanical sensors some 4,000 miles away in the Montana wilderness. 
Mm. Three years later, that array picked up a signal when a second bomb was exploded at nearly the same spot. With this pair of nuclear explosions, they were able to look at the core. Now it turned out nobody looked at the nobody used that data for anything back then. They just they just were noting that Russia was was firing off these nuclear bombs. But recently, data scientists, seismic scientists, have gone back to that old data to calculate precisely how fast the Earth's inner core is spinning. Now, the Earth spins on its axis about once every 24 hours. We know that. That's that's the day. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But the inner core, is, it's roughly a moon-sized shaped ball of iron floating within an ocean of molten metal. And it's free to turn independently from the planet's large-scale spin. Now, using signals from those two nuclear explosions, Don Vidale, a seismologist at University of Southern California, now has calculated the rate that that inner ball is spinning. He, he reports that the inner core is moving inches faster than the, Earth, than the Earth's surface each day. So if you'd stand on the equator at one spot uh, the inner and you would stand there for a year, the inner core would move about 4.8 miles away from you in a year. So in one year, the inner core would be moving around 4.8 miles. Uh, so it's moving actually faster than the Earth has done. I just thought it was interesting that they could take this old data from a from is, the nuclear explosion. Is this going to be a problem at some point? Well, they're trying to figure out how this influences the uh, you know the the magnetic field in the air. They're just trying to understand the physics of it. Huh. And I just thought it was just an interesting. I wonder if it affects us. I don't know. Uh, well, I think it does affect us. The, you know, the, the magnetic field on the Earth. Now they're just mm -hmm. trying to. Now what they're trying to figure out is how does it affect us? That's what they don't know. Now talking about nuclear explosions and nuclear things, it turns out that nuclear propulsion, thermonuclear propulsion, looks very promising. America, China, and Russia are all working to develop rockets powered by thermal nuclear propulsion. NASA chief Jim. Bridenstein says it could be a game changer for the space agency. Bridenstine gave a presentation on the importance of developing nuclear propulsion during a uh, tech meeting at the National Space Council. If NASA cracks this tech, Bridenstein told the crowd that it could revolutionize space travel by, by powering high-speed Mars-bound rockets and, and to uh, also rockets to outposts and settlements in outer space. And now, why this is important is that when uh, astronauts go to Mars and they're, they're exposed to all the radiation in space, and that's extremely damaging. So if you can get there quicker and get in a protected mode, you're going to be much better off. Now, as part of its annual budget, Congress granted NASA $125 million for nuclear propulsion research in May. And specifically, Congress was interested in getting faster trips to and from Mars, which could mean, you know, exposing astronauts to less radiation. You know, that'll be interesting if we can really get to Mars and stay there. It doesn't look very inhabitable, but it's certainly an interesting, interesting goal for humanity. Yeah, why not? Now, we how got nothing you... else to spend our money on. I know. <laughs> that's, that's true. Oh, you know, I, I walk in today, I saw for the first time a lift uh, motor scooter out, outside here. Usually I only see birds out there, but I saw a lift motor scooter. Oh, you know what? I forgot to tell you this. We did talk about this. Baltimore City finally uh, gave out their contracts for the first. They're, they're doing this stupid thing. Don't let my editorial opinion show here. They're, they're letting they're, – they have a contract now with four companies 
to to provide scooters and dockless bikes uh, to Baltimore City. And the first one in town, Bird, is not one of the ones who got the, uh, yeah. the contract. Yeah, did we talk about that? We did. We talked we did. about that. And so, yeah, Bird is Bird made a few mistakes putting out. You know, I think scoot- just dumping the the scooters in the city and letting everybody figure it out might have been a problem. Could have been a problem. Now, you know, how would you like, you know, we have all these voice assistants now. We've got Alexa, we've got Siri, we've got Google Assistant. They're always listening to us, you know. Yeah. So, so I mean, there's 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 kind of a, a you know, a privacy deal, deal that people kind of worried about. So, you know, is it possible to turn these um, these things off? Well, that you you can do something to, you know, regain a little bit of more privacy. Now, actually, I leave mine on all the time. They're so convenient. I just I just don't say anything that I don't, don't want Alexa to know about around you, her. You, you know. exhibit a lot of self-control. I, I, I do that. It's the constantly. I'm constantly under self-control. Self-filtered. Now, now, one thing you can do on, uh, on Alexa, you can opt out of human vetting through Alexa privacy tab. You know, because uh, um, on Alexa, Amazon has humans listening to this to, you know, Im- improve their voice recognition. And if you don't want humans to listening to your, to your conversations... You can you can go to the Alexa privacy tab in, your, in the smartphone app, the you know the Alexa smartphone app, and you can you can also delete your voice history. So you you, you can actually you, you you can actually go through there and you can delete your voice history. You can also write on the Alexa device itself. There's a kill switch which will kill the uh, which will kill the uh, you know, the microphone and it'll just stop stop listening. But of course you can't talk to it then. But I guess you can walk up to you could just. Press the kill switch again, talk to Alexa, and then and press, turn it back off. And turn it up back off. So then Alexa's not listening to you, you know, all the time. In Siri, you can disable Apple's uh, Assistant, which will delete any data associated with your account. In your settings, you also want to toggle off the um, the press side button uh, for Siri to present to prevent your Apple Watch. That's the front side button on the Apple Watch to prevent the Apple Watch from accidentally being activated when you press the crown of the timepiece. Now, the Google Assistant, you can disable human review of your voice commands and set up a system automatically doing this going forward. And there's a link uh, on mygoogle.com that will that you can get from the the show or you can just you can just Google Google Assistant disable human review and 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 you'll you'll get to that link too. So you can actually do something to protect your privacy in these little areas. Doc, let's take a short break okay. here. We'll be back in just a minute. It's Saturday morning. You're listed to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2. We're heard every Saturday morning here at 9 o'clock. You can learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu, also to federalnewsnetwork.com, and you can download our podcast at Podcast One and then from the Apple iTunes Store. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about a little bit of lingo here. We've got AI, artificial intelligence, versus machine learning, versus deep learning. And people seem to use these all interchangeably. So it's becoming increasingly more complicated because it, we have all these terms. Well, in a nutshell, deep learning is a subset of machine learning, and machine learning is a subset of AI. So AI is the big umbrella, then you have machine learning, and then you have deep learning, which is a subset within machine learning. Now, before the start of machine learning in the late 80s, business decision rules were mostly hard-coded sets of instructions. So you would just you would just say things like if you wanted to do image recognition, you in, uh, say of tanks versus airplanes, you might say, well, a tank is on the ground, airplanes in the air. You have a bunch of series of rules, and so people would sit down and write all of these rules, and they would uh, and they would try to do they would try to create what they call artificial intelligence. But it turned out that they couldn't figure out all the rules because a lot of the behaviors were were more complicated, and you could just simply put down with a string of rules. So AI as a set of business decision rules or technical decision rules was never really that successful. And then, and then machine learning came along, and what it was, you would take a, a whole set of data, maybe of uh, input data and output data, and then you would just allow the computer to analyze and try to relate the input and the output in any way that, and, and infer any relationships they would do. And just by looking at lots and lots of data, in machine learning, they would infer the rules independently of a human operator doing it. The data would indicate the rules through the machine learning process. And, and they would do something called what they call the backpropagation. They, they would take a neural net, which would have an input plane and an output plane. And in order to map the two together, you have to have a lot of intermediary layers of neural nets that are connected by synapses, and then this algorithm would actually compute the synaptic values of all of the layers in, in order to get this thing to work. And they called it a backpropagation algorithm because they would start from the output and back back to the, toward the input to, to see if they could match it. And, um, and that became, uh, in the 80s, that machine learning was just, they just called it artificial neural networks then. But we didn't have the processing power to really to really do much. You couldn't train it on complex data sets because you, could, you couldn't have a neural nets with like millions or billions of neurons. You didn't have enough processing power to do that. And so the computing power just wasn't able to do it. But then what happened, we, had, we then got cloud computers, virtual machines, and all of a sudden computers and computing power became super cheap. And so now the computing power caught up with the requirements needed for this back, backprop algorithm. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, machine learning became really viable. It started, it started taking off because, you know, and so we could start training on, I mean, one of the biggest things that we, that we just, I don't know if you noticed how, how much um, 
speech recognition improved in the last 10 years. Remember, they used to have all yeah. these rules that didn't work very well. And now it just works perfectly. Well, I wouldn't say it works perfectly, but it works pretty well. Yeah, it is pretty good. That's machine learning. You know what? Here's part of the problem. Have you ever tried this in the car? When you have radio on and you're trying to dictate something to the phone, <laughs> it confuses the phone. Yeah, if you have if you have two two different two sources two sources. Mm -hmm. But but machine learning has dramatically improved the speech recognition, and uh, and that's and they simply uh, and they simply you know trained it on. They they had an input sound pattern, and they mapped it to an output word or an output sentence, and they simply use the algorithm to sort of match it together. And machine learning is a, is a perfect application for that because the neural net or the, in our mind is really designed to recognize patterns, and speech is a pattern. Also, neural nets have been extremely effective at uh, face recognition. You're looking at also a pattern, an image pattern. And so face recognition has just dramatically improved with machine learning. Back back to the voice thing for a second. Mm -hmm. I've, I've noticed this. Now, you have the perfect Midwestern voice. You have no discernible accent. Mm -hmm. But at times, my native Baltimore ease comes in. And mm -hmm. when I try to dictate things to the phone, it gets, gets confused and some words don't come out correctly. I wonder if, you know, if you have like a really pronounced Boston accent or a mm -hmm. New York accent, if the AI can can correct for that over time. It it will correct for it. It will correct it will, for it. So what? But what what happened if the original data set did not include people with a Baltimore accent? It wouldn't have it. You see. Mm -hmm. But now what? Uh, say what Google is doing now that they've got and what uh, what Amazon is doing now that they're getting data, voice data, just as people are using the device, they actually are expanding their data set to all accents. And and then what they'll do is they will. That's why they have. People listening to it, so they'll have listeners that say, "Okay, this is what he was trying to he say." He said, "Pack the cat and the habit, yeah." Yeah, and so what and, they what they do is that then they'll take, uh, say, uh, a pattern, a voice pattern that wasn't recognized very well. They'll have a human listen to it, and he'll say, "Well, what he was saying was bridge," and then they'll add that to the training data set. Uh huh. And then it will get better and better and better with the accents. But this is the big controversy because now these companies are letting just anybody listen to the private words in your in your in your in your uh, that you have either through any of these devices. And so it's it's a it's a privacy issue. And so you can you can you can basically um, it's getting better and better and better. But but then you have to you still have to have data scientists to analyze the data. Analyze the results because if you have bad data, you're 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 not going to get a good machine right. learning result. Right. And we also have the other problem is it's it's not clear where how these algorithms work after we've done the training set. So if we try to train train some uh, computer using data, and they train it on the data set, there could be biases in the data, and and we don't have any way to track it because there are no rules there. It's just embedded in the data. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done on ethics and artificial intelligence. But I think this is a huge breakthrough. This this machine learning is going to be transformative. Back in the late '80s, when I when I was working on it, we were we were looking at uh, patterns 
coming out of engines using it for engine diagnostics. So that's like a perfect thing, you know, like there's a, a bad spark plug and you got a certain pattern coming out of one of the sensors. So you can just map that pattern. Well, so when you say you mean actual car motors. You were yeah, working. actual car motors. That, so was, you, that was one of the applications. So you were working on a, what, what is now basically diagnostic equipment that's used in car shops now, right? Yeah, that, but that was like in the late 80s. What, see, that's a very limited, easy kind of problem uh -huh. because, you know, a, a car might only have like 50, you know, 50 problems that you want to map to. And so that was a relatively easy problem. It didn't take a lot of processing, but it was a great application. Hmm. But that was the late 80s. So, um, you know, we were working on that back in the late 80s. And, you know, it, it never really went anywhere because we didn't have enough processing power to do big problems. And the rule-based AI never went anywhere because it just wasn't effective at capturing the nuances of data. So it just sort of the whole field kind of stagnated until the computers caught up with it. And then it just took off. Cool. Now, IBM is joining the Linux Foundation to promote, promote open source trusted AI. This sort of ties in with the last uh -huh. topic. We are worried. I mean, there's a worry that if we don't try to manage this AI and manage the algorithms and manage the outputs and figure out how things are working, that we're going to end up with a lot of computers that, that do things that we don't really understand very well. So, like machine learning, task automation, robotics are already widely used in business, but other other technologies, uh, you know, are used for hiring people, for doing all kinds of things. AI is advancing so quickly within the enterprise uh, that more than half of all organizations already have at least one AI deployment deployment in operations, and they're planning to accelerate their AI adoption in the next few years. At the same time that organizations are building and deploying these tools. We really have to grapple with the flaws and shortcomings of AI. What models are being used? Are they fair? Are they ethical? Are they secure? Are they even explainable? This is the problem with when you just train it on data. So IBM and the Linux Foundation believe that before the world is overrun with flawed AI systems, we need to accelerate the development of open source trusted AI workflows so people actually know what's working and why it's working. So in order to promote that effort, the company joined with the Linux Foundation uh, as a general member of the Linux Foundation AI Initiative. Now, the Linux Foundation AI Initiative will provide vendor-neutral space for the promotion of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning in open-source projects. I think this is really important. I think this is going to be such a pivotal technology that we don't want it to be proprietary. Just like the internet is open source, mm -hmm. it's not proprietary. Now, this initiative is backed by organizations like AT&T, Baidu, Ericsson, Nokia, and Huawei. The goal is to build tools that will improve the credibility of AI and do it together in a way that everybody can inspect and contribute to it. I think this is a really great initiative, and I applaud IBM and those other companies for doing that. Listen, the hour went really, really fast. It did. We love your emails. You can email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We also want you to go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and check out our programs in, in, in healthcare, in nursing, in computers, software engineering, in business accounting, culinary arts, hospitality, and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.